For the past eight weeks, we've been going through 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is the longest sustained, the most in-depth and creative exploration of the resurrection in all of the Bible. And this morning, we come to the final paragraph of this chapter, verses 50 through 58. If you have a Bible with you, please turn there, 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, verses 15, 50 through 58. We're going to notice three parts to this paragraph. Uh, the first part is verses 50 through 53, where there is this triumphant celebration of the future resurrection of our bodies. The second part is verses 54 to 57, where there's this just outburst, this shout of praise to God for the fact that the resurrection of our bodies is all because of victory that Jesus secured over death. And then the third, the third part of the paragraph is the final sentence of the paragraph, verse 58, where Paul reflects on all of this talk about the resurrection and how that can help us in our labors and in our work today. All right, so first of all, in verses 50 to 53, we have this triumphant celebration of our future resurrection from the dead. And the way that happens is that Paul begins by talking about the people who are still alive when Christ returns, that great moment when heaven is unveiled and the king reappears and those who died in Christ are raised to new bodies and the creation itself is set free from decay. Notice verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the, imper the perishable inherit the imperishable. He's saying, look, when God, when Christ is re re revealed again and this great act of new creation flushes through the entire universe, there's going to be this deal. The people who are still alive, whose bodies haven't decayed, well, their body is not equipped for the new creation because those who are still alive still have these old, broken, breaking bodies. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. There he says, he's talking about death, but we will all be changed. Somebody's going to be living at the end of all things when Christ makes all things new. He says, we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed also, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. The, the bodies of those who are living has, has to be changed, because our bodies are suited to this world. Just like this world is in decay, our bodies are in decay. But in the new creation, there's no decay, there's no death. So not only do the dead need to be raised, but the currently living need to be transformed also. Now, when Paul says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, some people have taken that and said, see, where this whole thing is headed is not physical. The, new, the kingdom can't have um, physical stuff in it. And this is where some people think about the future as this like, you know, great Casper convention in the sky where we're just all like moaning myrtle floating around. And um, somehow that's a good thing. But what's going on here is when Paul says flesh and blood cannot inherit, He's using the word flesh in a very specific way. When Paul uses the word flesh, he typically is talking about our bodies and something is wrong with them. For Paul, normally the word flesh is a way of describing something is wrong with our bodies. 
Either they're in rebellion against God or they're perishable and decaying and they're not supposed to. And what he means here when he says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, he tells us immediately after that, the imperishable cannot inherit the the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. Our bodies decay and die. Decay and death are not going to be accommodated in the new creation. They will be defeated. That's the whole point of the resurrection. The whole point of the resurrection is that death is our enemy. This is why, by the way, right before Jesus' death, he's so worked up. The gospel passage we had read to us, in the garden, Jesus is not having a good time in the garden of Gethsemane. He knows that death stands before him. And in Mark chapter 14, verse 33, it says, he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Why? Because death is the enemy. Jesus approaches his death with terror and horror, with trembling and distress. He's afraid. Death for Jesus is dreadful. And he doesn't want to be alone. So notice he gets his good friends. He takes his close friends, Peter and James and John, and he lets them in on this overwhelming fear of this great enemy. It's really interesting. In the earliest days of Christianity, in the first century, those who were not Christians and who disagreed with Christianity, they often compared Jesus in the garden on the night before his death with Socrates on the night before his death. Socrates also gathered his friends around, but not because he was afraid. Socrates famously was not afraid of death. Socrates didn't beg for courage. He saw death as a friend. He he saw death as the great liberator. It looses the chains. It releases the soul from the prison of the body so that the soul can go back to its eternal home. And so in the hours before he was executed in Plato's book, Phaedra, he finds Socrates calmly discussing the beautiful immortality of the soul. And then the next day, when it comes time for his execution, he calmly reaches out takes the hemlock, drinks it, and dies. And this is one of the most famous stories in the ancient world. And the opponents of Christianity love to point out how in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was afraid. And and there's nothing in Jesus of the composure of Socrates as Socrates met death, his friend. In Gethsemane, Jesus trembles and begs his disciples to not leave him alone. In the epistle to the Hebrews, we're told that Jesus' praying in the garden was with loud cries and tears. In the face of death, unlike Socrates, Jesus is not at peace. He's weeping and crying. And then at the moment of his death, Jesus is not like Socrates. In Mark chapter 15, verse 34, we read that Jesus doesn't calmly go into the night. He screeches, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is not a man meeting a friend. Death was not a friend. This is death 
as a frightful horror. And this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26, death is the last great enemy. The Christian view is that death is our enemy. It's God's enemy. Why? Because it separates us from something we're not supposed to be separated from. It separates us from God, who is life, the creator of all life, and because our bodies in this physical world matters to God. Remember, God said seven times how good it was. It's good, it's good, it's good. And so Jesus, who is God himself, experiences death so much more terribly than anyone else could for Jesus to be in the hands of the great enemy was to be God forsaken. When we put the death of Socrates and the death of Jesus side by side, we see the radical difference between a truly Christian view of the world and of death and the pagan view of the world and death. And it's paganism that shrugs its shoulder at death and says, now, now, honey, Aunt Bertha's in a better place. Aunt Bertha is free. Aunt Bertha is smiling down on us. Aunt Bertha has landed, and we'll get there too one day. It's Christianity, on the other hand, that says, no, death is not good. Yes, Aunt Bertha is with the Lord. She is at rest, but that's not where our hope hangs. It's a pagan view that says, just to hell with all this stuff. All this stuff doesn't matter. All this stuff has, is a prison that we've just got to get away from. It's a Christian view that says, this stuff is broken. Oh, God, redeem this stuff. Heal this stuff. Make this stuff whole again. And yes, Lord, I can die in peace because you went to death first. You took the sting. And you took the sting in such a way that you took the stinger out. And now when I go to death, death won't be the end. When I go to death, I will rest in you until you give me a new body and this whole world is made new again. This is why the resurrection of Jesus is so remarkable because in Jesus, God killed death. He defeated death. God himself went to the realm of the dead, the sphere of death, the destroyer of life, the sphere of nothingness, of abandonment by God. And then thanks be to God, he rose victorious, conquering our enemy. And so death, which spits in the face of the creator of this world, it cannot have the last word. So yes, we can face death without terror, but not because like Socrates, we're under an illusion that death is salvation. We can face it without terror because Jesus faced the full horror of death and defeated it. And those who follow after Jesus' death are facing a defeated enemy. We can die in peace with hope, not because we would mistakenly think the body is a soul's prison and our souls will go skipping happily and merrily along into eternity. We face death with hope, the hope that to die is to rest in the Lord who has defeated death, to be with him as we wait 
for the renewal of all things. That great moment when heaven is unveiled and King Jesus reappears and decay and death will not be accommodated. And we will be raised to walk in newness of life with bodies completely free of decay and corruption and wickedness and weakness and rebellion. And that's why in verses 40, 54 and 55, Paul breaks out into a taunt of death, a song of triumph over death. Listen to verses 54 and 55 again. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory now? Oh, death, where's your sting, chump? That's what he's doing. He's taunting death. The whole chapter has not been about coming to terms with death. That's what Socrates did. That's what paganism does. The whole chapter is about coming to terms with the defeat of death. And that's what we need. We need to come to terms with the defeat of death. It's Paul, like a warrior, standing triumphantly over the fallen enemy, mocking the power that has now become powerless. It's the defeat of death. It is not a compromise with it. God is not going to compromise with death. Death will not get to keep even one cell of you, not even one square inch of your heart, not even a piece of, of your will. Death will be broken for good and for all. In verse 56 and 57, we read, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory over death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory is assured because that which caused death from the beginning, sin, has been dealt with. We will not lose our bodies. We will be transformed and changed. Our mortal bodies will be changed into bodies fit for the new creation. And then we come to the last sentence of the whole amazing chapter. Verse 58, therefore, my beloved brother, and based on all of this amazing stuff, right, about the resurrection, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Notice Paul ends the longest, most sustained, in-depth, creative exploration of resurrection in the entire Bible. He ends it by talking about your job, your work, what you do Monday to Friday or Tuesday to Saturday, whatever your work schedule is. Now, you might think that he would conclude the chapter by saying, therefore, let's rejoice in the wonderful hope we can all look forward to. But he doesn't. You see, for Paul, work was hard. And his work was frequently discouraging. And he worried all the time that his work was in vain. Now, some of you can't relate to this, to a job that disappoints Paul was always struggling with discouragement. His work, his labors as a missionary, he was, I mean, in so many of his letters, he says, I fear that I've labored with you in vain. And he uses this word vain. It's the word from Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanity, all of life is vain. 
It's this word that in, it, it means like a smoke. It means ephemeral. It means everything you do, it just turns, it just disappears. There's no weight to it. There's no, it doesn't last. It just kind of falls to sand. You find Paul throughout his letters struggling with this. And when he does, he always goes back to Isaiah 49, the passage we heard read earlier, the Old Testament passage. In Isaiah 49, we find the servant saying, I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. I've just been wasting my time. Paul read that and he was like, that's me. That's exactly how I feel about all of these things I'm trying to do. But the Lord replies to Isaiah in chapter 49. He replies to the servant and he says, actually, you are to be the light to the nations. That's my, that my glory makes into the whole world. And so Paul himself went around that loop Time and time again, am I wasting my time? Does my job matter? No. God has promised that I will be the one to take the message of Jesus and bring it to the nations so that people who are way outside, even the borders of Israel, will hear it and respond. And then what we find Paul doing in 1 Corinthians at the end of the resurrection chapter is he looks at the Corinthians and now he says that same thing to them. He's saying it is hard laboring for God's kingdom. But these things we do, this work we do in this world, painting, and preaching, and singing, and sewing, and praying, and teaching, and building hospitals, and digging wells, and campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbors yourself. He says, these labors are not in vain. They're not weightless. They're not gonna just disappear. Our labors in the Lord will not pass away. They will last into the new creation. So think about some of the hard stuff that you are doing right now. Stuff that feels like it's for nothing. Are you loving someone and it's not helping? Things aren't changing? Are you teaching in a school that is failing at education? Are you tired of trying to be a good neighbor? Are you working in a company trying to get stuff done, but the company is so dysfunctional, it is hard to go to work? Are you tired of forgiving, showing mercy, having courage? Resisting temptation? Paul is showing us that these things we do, they are hard. And they look like they're in vain. They don't matter. But that he's showing us these are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable until the day we get to leave it all behind. No, what he's showing us is that every act of gratitude... Every act of kindness, every struggle to be holy, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation, every minute spent teaching a child with autism to read or walk, every act of care or nurture of comfort and support for other humans or for the non-human creation, every prayer, every spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel and builds up the church and embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, 
All of the things we do to make the name of Jesus honored, all of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation. It will not be done in vain. It will make it. It will last. It will be there. All of this hard work that we do now for God, forgiving and loving and working for justice and beauty and witnessing to the gospel and submitting our minds to the truth of the scriptures, all of the hard work that we do in making peace and doing justice and healing families and suffering from our families and tithing and sacrificially giving when we'd rather use all the money in our ways. It's so hard. But in the Lord, it is not in vain. Every labor in the Lord is an earthly event and a long history of things that implement Jesus' resurrection and anticipate the final new creation. What we do outside of this building when we go about our lives working and loving, and neighboring, and citizening, when we are just getting on with the responsibility of the task at hand, whatever we do out of obedience to the gospel, if we are following Jesus, and if we are indwelt, and energized, and directed by his spirit, everything will last. It will matter. It will stand for all time. Now, how? How God will take our prayer, our art, our love, our writing, our political action, our music, our honesty, our daily work, our caring, our teaching, how God will take this and weave it into the glorious tapestry of the new creation, we have no idea how. I mean, this is like advanced, 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 advanced calculus, right? Like even more than some of the nerds in the room can do. We don't know how, but that he will do it. This is part of the truth of the resurrection. And this is the part of the truth of the resurrection he ends the entire chapter on. Perhaps, for many of us, this is the most comforting part of the resurrection. Let's pray.